Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Hello, and welcome to episode 188 of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. We're here today with Steve Oxtalkalnis, who is the author of Practical Augmented Reality. Mr. Oxtalkalnis is also the former director of the Virtual Environment and Interactive Systems Program for the National Science Foundation. He's also a former professor at Mississippi State University. Mr. Oxtalkalnis, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? Very well. Thank you for the opportunity. So uh, you're welcome. The first question I'd like to pose to you is what are you currently doing or what have you ever done to advance the public interest and why? <clears throat> I've spent approximately 25 years working in the field of virtual and augmented reality. These are alternative display technologies for use with computers and the my particular thrust behind this field is a development of applications for these technologies that can be used in architecture, medicine, uh, aerospace engineering, uh, and a variety of different uh, business-to-business type of applications that increases efficiency, uh, better patient outcomes, uh, and advancing, in general, the field of computer graphics. So I understand that this technology of augmented reality and virtual reality has been around for decades, and you've been involved in this field for decades, yet I'm sure decades ago it might have been quite difficult to imagine an architect walking through a building that had yet to be built or a real estate agent having uh, providing his customers with opportunities to walk through various uh, real estate projects or a teacher having a, a, a class go on a virtual field trip to another side, the other part of the world or a surgeon um, going into a patient that hadn't yet been operated on. Can you speak a little bit about the evolution of augmented and virtual reality and the difference between the two and, and, and your vision um, for how and how you actually came to see where we are today throughout the course of the past few decades? So perhaps a good starting point on this question would be to explain the difference. Um, augmented and virtual realities are often part of the same conversation, though they're very different. One, augmented reality will provide textual or graphical information overlaid onto your real-world view. And it, typically this holds some real-time relationship with the situation. So for instance, one application, you bring it up, put on these special glasses, and you're able to look down the street and see little 3D signs hanging in front of each business, explaining what type of business it is or their menus, for instance. This is just a, a very simplistic example. Or for instance, medical imagery being overlaid onto a patient's hand as the surgeon is performing um, some procedure so that they can see hidden features that would normally be blocked by the skin. So this is augmented reality. Virtual reality gives the user the visual sensation of being inside of the images so that you can look up, you can look behind you. For instance, using the architectural walkthrough example that you gave. An architect can have a client come into their office, put on a head-mounted display, and see the building that's been designed for them, allowing them to walk through it, evaluate it from, for instance, the perspective of an adult or the perspective of a child, months before a single spade of dirt has been turned in the construction process. The, <clears throat> I think I kind of what, 
I think it kind of went off on uh, lost part of your question there as I was explaining that. Yeah, it was uh, interesting to hear the difference between augmented and virtual reality. We were talking about the evolution of both technologies the evolution, over the past yeah. few decades. So uh, <clears throat> I put on the very first head-mounted display. My first experience with this was in 1989. And at that time, the displays weighed approximately four pounds sitting on the head, a large, very low resolution, flat panel array in front of each eye, very heavy stereoscopic wide angle optics that would mm -hmm. spread the imagery around to cover all of your field of view. Now, resolutions have come up dramatically, um, uh, nearly a tenfold increase in resolution, computing horsepower, what normally back in the 80s would take a quarter million dollar graphics workstation that same processing power can be found on your mobile phone. And so the prices come down significantly. The, the resolution of the displays have come increased dramatically. The different sensor technologies have increased dramatically. And it, within the next couple of years, we'll start to see new displays that come out that actually, instead of having a flat panel where images are in front of each eye, the new displays will use the retina of the eye as the display surface. So there'll be nothing in front of your eyes, which means that you won't have heavy electronics, heavy optics in front of the face anymore. And the sizing of the glasses will come down to be approximately, maybe a little bit bigger than a pair of Bole sunglasses. But that's the direction that it's headed down. Are there any health or ethical concerns with projecting displays onto individuals' retinas? Not necessarily. You know, the light will be entering the eye the same way that natural light enters the eye. And mm -hmm. uh, it's not that challenging to vary the luminance or the brightness of the light that's being projected into the eye. So I'm sure that all of this is not only being taken into account by the developers, but the different uh, regulatory agencies, I'm certain, will be watching very closely to make sure that uh, things are kept uh, within healthy limits. So if you were in 1989 putting on this four-pound device onto your head um, with a, a much simpler graphics card, what were you anticipating might be developed in the coming decades, and to what extent did reality actually align with your vision for the future? Uh, reality has aligned very well with, or with what we envisioned back then. For instance, architectural walkthroughs were some of the very first applications that were developed because it's a no-brainer. Everybody mm -hmm. gets it. Um, mm -hmm. But the direction that this has taken has, um, <clears throat> it has far exceeded what we were thinking. For instance, the U.S. Forest Service uses virtual reality simulators to train smoke jumpers or the, the the firefighters that jump out of the back of the cargo aircraft into the middle of forest fires. And they use this in order to train the smoke jumpers on how to clear a chute malfunction. Or NASA's developed a means through which uh, you can practice um, aerial refueling operations. So flying along in a plane, look outside of the plane, and you will see computer-generated um, tanker aircraft and a computer-generated probe on your aircraft. And so this is while you're actually flying. You look out the windows and you see computer-generated aircraft around you. You can practice these types of maneuvers. 
all the way through to surgeons now being able to practice various techniques, surgical techniques in their home office, preparing for did the next strike going you, through. Did it strike you that a lot of uh, that, that kind of potentially the implications of moving forward from 1989 is almost very, is very much, it seems as though it would have been in the realm of science fiction. In the 1980s, Back to the Future came out um, with a whole lot of ideas about what uh, the early 21st century might look like, and now you're able to go, I mean, like you said, you have a quarter million dollar uh, corporate computer in, in your pocket, and in fact, what's in our pocket now is, is able to access a whole lot more information um, than we even could have dreamed of in the 80s. Does, I guess, it, there must have been some kind of magical allure to it for you, um, for you to de develop your career. Can you speak a little bit more about what you were doing at the time at the National Science Foundation or at Mississippi State, um, and then what led you to leave those positions to pursue uh, your interest in augmented reality and virtual reality uh, full-time? So <clears throat> my position with the National Science Foundation at Mississippi State, the specific intent was to develop applications for these technologies for the U.S. government, and U.S. industry uh, in order to make both more competitive. So, mm -hmm. for instance, uh, developing um, ways for uh, engineers to be able to visualize flow of water around the outside or around a ship's hull as it slices through the water and being able to view uh, turbulence and drag and other features that uh, you could not possibly achieve using a standard two-dimensional display through to um, visualization of inhaled medications to see how far it expands through the bronchial tree inside of the chest. Uh, with the university itself, uh, we worked very closely with the School of Architecture, where in addition to students learning uh, traditional design techniques on paper and vellum and so on, they would also, um, they were learning early on to use CAD modeling in order to produce computer-generated drawings. Well, we would have the students dump their 3D CAD models into um, it, the equivalent of the cloud back then. We would import those into a simulation utility and have an entire classroom of students gathered with 3D glasses on, and one student would be up using a stereoscopic uh, head-mounted display, and they would explain their design decisions as they maneuvered through their design while everybody else was viewing passively with 3D glasses. And what the goal was with this was to help the students develop a balance between what they mentally envision a building looking like and what they actually articulate in the form of construction documents and CAD models and helping them develop that balance while they're still in school as opposed to having to wait for them to get out, get into practice, design a building, see it constructed, and then realize, ah, I did it wrong, or I drew it wrong. And so if we could help them develop that balance early on, you're turning out better architects. So these were the primary thrusts um, back with those positions, helping U.S. industry, helping the U.S. military, and other branches of the U.S. government, and helping industry stay more competitive. Are there any areas of augmented and virtual reality today that you could not have foreseen a few decades ago? 
Quite a few. Uh, one of the most striking, if you can imagine being, you know, piloting a, a simple um, general aviation aircraft, like a single engine Cessna, and you're flying around, typically you're spending a lot of time looking into the cockpit mm -hmm. at the multifunction displays. And you're seeing a two-dimensional representation of 3D terrain, objects placed all around you and so on, locations of aircraft, your, your, um, your flight route and so on. There are software packages and displays available now that can be purchased for under $2,000. You put on the glasses and all of that three-dimensional information that you would normally be looking at on the multifunction display in the cockpit is now overlaid and stabilized as you turn your head through it. So for instance, um, icons floating out in the middle of the air representing different aircraft that are around you, drawing a highway in the sky that shows you your exact route so that you don't have to look in and try and align your compass and so on. The highway is drawn for you. You just follow that path through the sky. Things like this we could not imagine back uh, in, in the early 80s, especially being available to the general consumer. Things like this for the Defense Department, definitely, but on a low level where, you know, some average weekend flyer can go out and purchase something like this to give them the increased level of situational awareness. These are just astonishing applications that uh, we didn't see coming quite some time ago. There are clearly many benefits to society from having uh, improved augmented and virtual reality apparatus, apparati that are available to the consumer. Can you speak about some of your motivations for developing these? Because after all, this is public interest podcast and it's uh, guests often speak about the motivations for improving society and, and benefiting others. Why is it that you were so interested in pursuing um, augmented and virtual reality as opposed to just uh, remaining in, in, the, in the private sector or, or in the public sector or in many different areas in society before you moved into what you're in now? I think one of the primary driving forces for me has been the potential for the education applications. Now, let's get away from the architecture side. Let's talk about, for instance, K through 12. <clears throat> let's say that uh, you want to take uh, a classroom full of fifth graders for an okay. afternoon of diving on the Great Barrier Reef, or to teach high school students the difference between Ionic and Corinthian columns by mm -hmm. taking them on a field trip for an hour through some of the ruins in Greece. Experiential learning like this can have a profound impact on learning outcomes. If the pedagogy, if, if the coursework is set up correctly so that it's not just letting the students fly around in these models um, uh, unguided, but to draw the attention of a class saying, see the difference between the squirrel pattern on this column and this column, or uh, talking about the different types of fish that you would find at different depths on the Great Barrier Reef, or taking them on a, on a virtual tour of the Louvre and showing them some of the classic paintings from the Renaissance. Experiential learning like this sticks like glue inside of a student's head compared to standard book learning. And this is kind of the juice for me, is that if you can further learning outcomes, particularly in disadvantaged students, mm -hmm. um, 
there's there's no end to what can be achieved with that, and it just takes uh, careful thought on the the coursework and again the pedagogy. You know how to fit it in with the rest of the coursework that a student's normally used to um, engaging with on a daily basis in class. Now, in the vein of education, you have recently released a book, Practical Augmented Reality. Um, which could be used as an educational platform. Um, can you speak a little bit about what it is you present in that book? And then also, um, have you ever thought about using augmented reality uh, in combination with that book so that people could see overlays or different examples um, if they were to look at your textbook with an augmented reality display? You are very astute in that question. In that, uh, So starting first with a description of the book. Uh, the publisher is Pearson, which is a large academic publisher. The book was written um, to be a supplemental text for university courses on computer graphics and game design and things like this. And what I go through in the book is I first explain the mechanics of the human eye, how we actually see, and then tie that into the design of the head-mounted displays. I explain the mechanics of your sense of hearing, tie that into three-dimensional sound, then the mechanics of your sense of touch and how you're able to distinguish between the texture of your denim on your jeans and, for instance, the texture of a carpet. And then tying that into different tactile and force feedback technologies, we talk about the human factors considerations. For instance, what makes half of the people that put on head-mounted displays initially dizzy or nauseous? Um, application case studies. The book is 453 pages divided into 22 chapters and two appendices, 405 bibliographic citations. So it's, it's meant not as a spacey, wow, look what could be. This is a very serious look at the technologies and the human factors considerations, why it works as powerfully as it does. And <clears throat> this now circling back into the other uh, portion of your question, one moment. <clears throat> Can you help me remember what the other <laughs> portion of your question was? Uh, using augmented reality to interact with your textbook? Uh, yes, yes. So with the next edition of the book, we are working on um, ways that in lieu of having a head-mounted display, when somebody's viewing the book, there's an application you can download onto your phone, and then you use the camera on your phone you look at the page and you'll see a 3D image or a 3D model that will pop up out of the page that's visible on your mobile device. Mm -hmm. and so, on. so you can move the mobile device around and so on. So um, this can be a powerful tool, for instance, in chemistry textbooks where you are trying to share or trying to convey the three-dimensional structure of a complex protein or some other molecule and to be able to bring it up in 3D allows the student to vary their viewpoints around it as opposed to just looking at a standard 2D representation on a textbook page. So the next edition of the book will incorporate the use of these technologies in the actual content of the book. So clearly looking to demonstrate uh, the actual substance of the textbook by with and incorporating it into the uh, with the technology is 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 clearly a, a new way of of enhancing educational learning um, in this nation. As 
I mean, there's so many different concerns that this new technology might bring and different issues. I know that um, it, would you would you care to elaborate on any of the ethical concerns or legal implications of uh, the virtual reality, augmented reality, or, or if there's such a, right now we're finding uh, increases in uh, virtual crime and, and uh, cyber crime. If, is there any potential for any of those things? And, and then, of course, and because we're reaching the end of the podcast, just want to allow you to just speak uh, as you like on this. And finally, you mentioned uh, that by 2025, the AR, VR uh, market size is projected to reach $16 billion, but you also mentioned that there's something um, that might be able to kill the industry. So if you could elaborate on any of those topics, I'm sure our listeners would be would be interested. So some of the uh, broad-ranging concerns that not only myself but others in the industry are trying to be sensitive to. Uh, let's start with virtual reality. The current generation of head-mounted displays completely occludes a user's view to the outside world. So you put this thing on your face and you don't see anything in your surroundings. All that you see is the computer-generated imagery that's being displayed in front of you. So there's going to be product liability uh, cases that are guaranteed to come down the line there. Um, there is growing concern about the, the impact that uh, violent first-person games being ported to virtual reality simulations, what the impact will be on younger people. Um, will it uh, cause an increased uh, aggressive nature about them? You know, as they're going through, you know, hour after hour after hour of shooting up human characters inside of these different games, how does that translate to an impact on their real world walk and the, the nature of their being? Um, this is a touchy subject in that uh, this is a multi-billion dollar industry, uh, the gaming industry, and virtual reality would seem to be a, a natural fit for that to give the, the, the game player an increased sense of presence inside of that environment. Uh, so there's lots of questions about how that will have an impact. Uh, there's also uh, concerns about um, virtual crime so let's say that you're in a big multi-user type of environment like Second Life, and you purchase some maybe virtual art piece and stick it in your virtual home. Now, if somebody comes, another user comes in and takes that virtual art piece out of your virtual home, is that a crime that would, especially since there's a monetary value to it, is there a crime that would then move into a real, a real world court situation or a legal battle. And there are, in fact, law firms across the United States that are now standing up practices to start to look at this and to position themselves in terms of understanding expertise, so on, to be able to handle cases like that in that they're all coming down the pike. Also, for instance, something as simple as virtual groping where your character goes up and gropes another character inside of this. Is there, you know, th these are things that people are starting to try and sort through now because the, the technologies are advancing so quickly that uh, these are now be becoming issues because it's happening. And, uh, and so uh, the legal side to this is uh, the Wild West right now. 
Hmm. And uh, and anything that might threaten the industry with enormous potential to uh, for growth in in the upcoming uh, in the future in the next uh, until 2025. 16 billion dollars is a lot, but you said mentioned something might disrupt the industry. Yes. So <clears throat> there's uh, some challenges that are faced human perceptual challenges that are faced with these technologies. When you have the compelling visual sensation of motion, but you don't have the corresponding inner ear cues, the vestibular cues, Mm -hmm. that disconnect of sensory information or the mismatching of sensory information, the body um, (laughs) revolts against it. And it initially starts with um, a little bit of dizziness, cold, sweat, or what they call increased stomach awareness. Uh, This is the inverse of motion sickness, where if you imagine being on the inside of a boat where you have the inner ear sensation of moving, but you don't have any visual cues that correspond to it. All you're just seeing is the boat, the inside of the boat, and so on. Both result in the same thing. Both are caused um, by an inverse of, of mismatched sensory information. This is also something, this is something that affects more than half the people that put on the displays initially. You adapt rather quickly, but it's something that uh, uh, is posing some significant challenges in terms of the design of the 3D models um, and being able to control, for instance, how fast people are shifting their heads around and so on. you know, they're trying to find ways in the content to be able to control these different types of uh, negative physical manifestations. But so there, are, there seem to be a lot of different uh, implications as this new technology evolves. Um, we are approaching the end of this podcast, and so I'd like to ask you a final question, which is to consider um, your years working with augmented and virtual reality. Uh, within the context of public service, how it, why you've been motivated to do this, and at the end of your career, what you hope your legacy will be through for having spent years of your life working in augmented and virtual reality. Uh, I'll start with the, the the end of the question and work back towards the beginning. My my primary drive has been to not promote uh, the the science fiction-y view, you know, and the, the, you know, the space age, you know, the, the mystical part of it. I got my start working under a hardcore scientist in this field that developed, spent himself spent decades developing applications for the Defense Department. And my interest is to further a technical understanding of this field in that if you teach people the core, you know, why these technologies work the way that they do, why they enhance uh, the strengths of the human perceptual system and to be able to allow people to assimilate information faster. My thrust is if there's a solid technical understanding that will lead to more or higher impact applications for it. Whereas if there's no textbooks out that explain the baseline reasoning for these technologies, how everything works, how it all fits together, the human factors, considerations of it, you're going to come up with uh, years and years worth of weak applications. And so I'm just trying to move the technical understanding of the field forward and let that be my legacy as a, in this field, as opposed to trying to start a business, put out a new game, 
you know, so. And that has been Steve Oxpacalmus, who is the author of uh, Practical Augmented Reality, uh, a former director of virtual environment at the National Science Foundation, and a former professor at Mississippi State, who speaks about uh, a variety of ethical and legal entertainment and business implications to these new technologies, augmented and virtual realities, augmented um, being a uh, graphical overlay over a real world view, and then a virtual reality actually placing the viewer inside of these images. Speaks of, thing, uh, of, of diverse applications from creating highways in the sky for fighter pilots to enabling surgeons to visualize uh, bones and veins uh, inside the structure of someone's hand prior to making the first cut. He uh, articulates his interest in uh, advancing the technological understanding of the field um, and facilitating the assimilation of information quicker uh, for consumers around the globe. His greatest interest is the educational implications of augmented and virtual reality. Um, and with an increasingly technological world and in the information age, uh, clearly there's a lot of development that is uh, yet to be seen and, and a lot of new growth that is on the uh, cusp of tomorrow. So, uh, Dr. Oxfakalmas, I'd like to thank you, or Mr. Oxfakalmas, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us today. I thank you for the opportunity. This has been another episode of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe on publicinterestpodcast.com and on iTunes. Leave a review of this podcast on iTunes and listen on Stitcher, SoundCloud, CastBox, Blueberry, Player FM, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Should you wish to comment on this episode, you're welcome to leave a voicemail at 240-630-0380. And the first three minutes of that voicemail may be played in future episodes of Public Interest Podcast. Should you wish to support the podcast, you're welcome to leave a contribution in an amount that you feel comfortable with at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.